to the Weird Warriors podcast. On this show, we will be covering the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. And this time around, we will be looking at issue eight of Weird War Tales. And my name is Max. And my name is Rich. At least that's what my wife tells me it is. There you go. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's good that you have someone to remind you because I was getting tired of doing that. But before we dive into the issue, Rich has a little retroactive history. Indeed I do. Weird War Tales number five featured the reprinted story from Star Spangled War Stories 14 from October 1953, Face of Firing Squad. It was also the very odd story I didn't have the original of at the time, so I couldn't do the comparison of the two and see what had changed. Well, I have since acquired said Star Spangled War Stories 14 and can do so now. The reprint had the stressed out talking head from the framing sequence on the first panel, and as is usually the case, the original lead-in was much cooler. When I volunteered for OSS, the cloak and dagger outfit of the army, I knew I was in for a rugged deal, but I had asked for it. Still, I never expected what would happen to me in Operation Homing Pigeon when I faced a firing squad. A slight title change and still one of the worst stories we've covered here, but hey, that's over with. So onward to the new stuff. Yeah, I mean, at least that version had a really cool intro and, you know, Operation Homing Pigeon uh, alone is an improvement. So uh, yeah, diving into this issue, um, as we emblazoned at the top of the script here, this is the first all original content issue. And they kick that off with a cover illustrated by Neil Adams himself. And this came out November 1972. And the cover shows a huge stone statue with glowing red eyes stepping off its base toward three German soldiers crouched behind sandbags firing toward the viewer. A fourth German uh, looks behind him and sees the statue reaching toward him with disbelief. In the cover's background, to one side of the statue is a tall barbed wire fence and a watchtower, and to the statue's other side are ruins. I get the idea that this is supposed to be a Jewish ghetto somewhere in Eastern Nazi-occupied Europe. Now, yeah, about like a, the statue, I should say, is not reaching for the soldier in disbelief. The German is looking back at the statue in disbelief because apparently he didn't expect it to start crawling down, and uh, it's, it's got one of his buddies in its other hand already, squeezing him to death. Yeah, a, a fourth German soldier. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> yeah, just the way I read it, it, you could have said the statue was in disbelief. Like, I didn't know I could move. What the heck is this? But yeah, man, um, it, it, it's a great cover. The, the Weird War Tales logo is cool as always. The little bodies crammed into the letters of the word weird are in dark red. You know, the background is this kind of nice blue sky looking day, which is a nice juxtaposition with the scene of an impending crushing death happening in the foreground. So uh, beyond that, oh, and we have a cover price of 20 cents. So yeah, that's how cheap comics used to be, people. And the DC logo looks kind of like the one that they have now, actually. They've sort of cycled around to one that looks like the one on the cover of this issue. So beyond that, what kind of commendations you got for this one? Well, this cover clinches why Neil Adams was such a great Batman artist. I mean, the shock on the one German's face as he sees the, the, the statue coming towards him, and the fourth one fighting to free himself in vain. I mean, this is this is a great start to the run of the original material. This is this is you know this is a good cover. I, I really really like this. Yeah, as whenever I've posted art from Neil Adams on Facebook, I I always call him Neil freaking Adams because uh, 
there's just nothing he can't draw. And like for my commendations bit, I'm going to say I'm, you know, I'm not always a fan when others try this, but Neil Adams is a master of juxtaposing the weird with the realistic, which is very appropriate for this series. I mean, the soldiers in the setting look nearly photorealistic, but then the statue is like pure comic book dynamism down to its hands look big enough for each one to wrap around its own head. And there's these motion lines around mostly the statue, but almost all the figures indicating the, you know, the action going on, you know, and that I feel has really fallen out of style in comics, like just showing motion lines around figures to indicate movement. People don't really seem to do that anymore, but I think that's a huge part of comic book art vocabulary. And Neil just puts that right in there on this cover. So again, you got photorealism, but a very dynamic and exaggerated statue monster, and then motion lines on something that otherwise looks very realistic. It shouldn't really work, but Neil can make all that work together like it's supposed to be there. So huge fan of the cover. I think, you know, it's it's Neil freaking Adams. There's not much he can do wrong art-wise. So that'll bring us to um, the opening bit, and uh, I'll let you tell us about that. It's called The Guide to No Man's Land. It's uh, Death is a as our guide in a one-page opening in the trenches of World War One, uh, Tony Dizaniga, sorry if I butchered that, does the art, and we don't know who wrote it. Maybe it was Tony. We don't know. But um, just diving right into Killjoy was here. He, Death is wearing a, a British uniform, and all the soldiers he's walking by appear to be French, which is probably deliberate because Americans always kind of automatically equate more with the the Tommies because of you know, the English language and everything. But um, he perfectly captures the World War I experience on this one page. You know, the fear in the French police faces, the blasted barbed wire, the shading, you know, the trenches are all being held up by logs. There's ladders leaning up, you know, to take you over the top, uh, the shadowing and shading and everything, the mud. This is, again, you know, for, for, for page one of the all original material, Boom. He got it. He got it. Yeah, I I really love this um, uh, in many ways. I think, for one thing, we've got more of a classic horror host going on, you know, like someone who's talking directly to you, the reader, you know, so so that just feels like they're locking into a more classic formula. The art is, like you said, Tony DeZuniga. I've always said DeZuniga. I've I've heard people on different shows say DeZuniga. I don't think that's it, but, you know. I've never heard anyone say his name in an interview. So his art, I've always been a fan of. You can probably go to like Wikipedia or something like that. And they'll have the pronunciation thing. Yeah. I mean, like 10 that. seconds on Google could have answered that question for me, <laughs> quite frankly. But, you know, we just got a new cat, so I'm busy. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'll kill Joy a little bit. But in my way, I'll say the sound effects kind of let the side down a bit in a couple of places for me. One is likely just an accident or artifact of the printing process. Um, In the first panel, one of the vips looks like a yip. And I just don't think, you know, that could just be, like I said, the, the V tail got pulled down by the crappy printing process, but it almost had a comical effect to me, like vip, vip, and then yip. I'm like, somebody hit a poodle, you know? And I don't oh, think they, I did, yeah, I don't think they look very good visually either. They almost look like festival lights strung across, you know, something hanging above the trench, like festive. And then in panel three, there's this soldier just falling down into the trench and there's this sound effect, floosh that looks and sounds pretty comical. It's almost like someone's flushing a toilet. And I get that that might exactly be the sound 
the falling soldier would make into the muddy trench. But um, it just kind of stood out from how grim and awesome the art is to have this little floating yip festival light and then floosh. But with all that said, I still like the heck out of this page, um, despite sitting there spending all my time crapping on it. <laughs> so beyond that, we're going to go to some more excellent Tony De Zuniga art in the first story, the first full story in the issue called The Avenging Grave. And I'll take the synopsis on that one. So we got Bob Conniger writing art, as I said, by Tony De Zuniga. And a German patrol during World War II comes across a World War I battleground with the remains of French soldiers still littering the landscape. Major Strasser, the patrol leader flashes back to tell Lieutenant Dietrich of how he'd ambushed a French patrol on this very site, caught in the act of filling their canteens. A grenade thrown in their midst got them running, and the Germans, shooting, pursued them into an artillery barrage. Trapped, the French desperately seek shelter in an abandoned trench, but the shellfire pounded the trenches to pieces and buried the French alive. Only the bayonets on the end of their rifles were left sticking above ground. The Major, back in the present, wraps up his tail by commenting, The dead never return. An artillery barrage at that moment gets the Germans running, where they discover the bayoneted French rifles still sticking out of the ground. A close shell explosion uncovers the skeletal remains of the French soldiers who attack the Germans. German fire rips through the dead men to no effect, and they are wiped out between the artillery fire and the vengeful, what's that word? Palou. Palou. Gesundheit, as I said in my stupid comment in the script, um, which means French soldiers. So the vengeful, undead French soldiers and the artillery fire finish off the Germans. Major Strasser is bayoneted and dies, whispering, the dead never return, never, never. And he's gone. And that's the end of our story. So Rich has some... Very interesting info once he gets past his killjoy here. Um, so I'm passing the mic over to you, sir. Alrighty then. Well, this got brought up in an earlier episode. The, the swastika armband that Strasser is wearing in the, in the story was never worn into the field. The Germans just learned real, real fast that those uh, drew fire. So, but if that's the only bitch that I have, well, all's the better. But um, yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, there's this one panel that does, does Zaniga whatever. You say your way, I'll just I'll say it mine. Uh, draws of the dead French soldiers exposed in the trench after the shell unearths them. But uh, I'm going to go all in on the story behind the story on you here instead. Uh, the idea of the trench of bayonets here no doubt comes from the nine-month-long Battle of Verdun in World War One. Over 300,000 died on both sides in one of the bloodiest battles of the war. On June 12, 1916, the 137th Regiment of French Infantry was almost annihilated when the positions they occupied were obliterated by German shellfire. Years later, French teams exploring the battlefield found what is now called Bayonet Trench. The tips of the bayonets still attached to the rifles sticking out of the ground and a body buried in a standing pose beside each one. Under relentless bombardment, they'd been buried alive, standing up. Now, that's the legend, anyway, which probably helped the fundraising effort to build a monument there in 1920. Even veterans of the war found this scenario unlikely. No documentation confirming the details of the story can be found. 47 sets of remains were recovered there, 14 of which were identifiable. The bodies may have been deliberately buried in the trench with the bayonet serving as a mark. The truth may never be known, but the memorial still stands at the battlefield. Yeah, I think that's an amazing story, even though, like um, like you said, it, some of the details were likely pumped up to, like you said, fund the building of a monument and et cetera, you know, and stories just grow in the telling, but, but damn, that is just, it's cool that Conagher had obviously heard that story 
and built this one off that one. So, you know, he wrote tons of war comics and um, was obviously a fan beyond that and did tons of his own research. So I would have never known that reading this comic. I would have just been like, huh, well, that seems unlikely. Oh, there's zombies. I guess that makes sense then. And I'd have moved on. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is why you keep uh, the, the history geek on the staff, right? Because like, as I'm reading this story, I'm like, this sounds kind of familiar. Bayonet Trench. I've, I've, I've heard something about this somewhere and I had to go digging into the archives I'm like, yep, yep, yep. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, man. I wouldn't have time to read all the comments I'd be getting if I did this by myself. Like all, all the people going, um, actually there's something you don't, there's something, there's a lot I don't know. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to read. Let me just cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, believe me. It isn't just limited to comic books and the war either. There's a lot I don't know about everything. So from my commendations, I'll, you know, broken record. And I think I say it the same way you do, De Zuniga, right? His art is amazing in this story. Um, for me, the lighting, the colors, the backgrounds, and, and specifically the increasingly wild panel designs all add immensely to the sense of immersion and like the escalating horror of this story. The first page is like a relatively standard layout in its design, but there's the German kicking a helmeted skull and he's kicking it from one panel into an earlier panel across the scene. And that's like almost right there letting you know that things are going to start going a little off track as far as normalcy of design from that point forward. Um, so, and he's such a good artist. I have to think like an element like that was intentional on Tony's part because that bouncing helmet still plays a role in at least the next page and even the one after that maybe. But um, I, I just want to... The placement of it is, is great because when the, when the helmet bounces, it bounces right next to the title of the story, The Avenging Grave. So it's just, boom, how are you? Yeah, it's just the whole thing is just his ability to, you know, design an entire page himself for like for the reader to, to experience as an artifact of storytelling is is awesome. And I, and I gush about him because he was one of the main artists and I think co-creator on the original Jonah Hex stories in Weird Western Tales. So I'm just going to cat and, and like and I'm a huge fan of Jonah Hex. I have read like all that stuff, even up to all the modern versions of him, even that new 52 series where he was in Gotham City. I had to do it. So I'm going to cast a vote for some side missions covering Jonah Hex stories right here and now because he was a veteran. Okay, a Confederate veteran, but you know, there's a lot of that in these early DC books like uh, Haunted Tank and whatnot. But um, still, Jonah Hex was awesome, and I vote that we cover him in the future sometime. So you can take that vote and stick it somewhere and cover our next story. Well, I do have some of the more current stories of his that uh, Sam Glansman did the art on and what <laughs> Lansdale wrote. Yes, those, those, I, are some, those are some good stories right there. So I would anyway. imagine it wouldn't take a twisting of the arm. That's why I was like, oh, I'm getting this in now. We, 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 we shall take it under consideration. When we say we, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, on to, the next, uh, on to the next story. Thou Shalt Not Kill, which is the cover story, actually. Um, pencils by Steve Harper, who I've never heard of, and inks by Neil Adams, and again, writer unknown. And the synopsis is as follows. A patrol of German soldiers on horseback enters Prague to discover a shaking private standing under a huge statue that has outstretched arms. Five other German soldiers lie dead on the ground. The officer leading the patrol demands the private to report what happened, which he does. Their job had been to round up the local Jews for deportation because they were enemies of the Reich. 
The Jews begged the statue, a golem fashioned out of clay by their ancient rabbi to protect them from oppressors, to protect them from the Nazis. Hauptmann Kunz does not take this well and orders a machine gun train on the Jews, who warn him if they shoot, a day will come when our God shall have its vengeance upon you. The four Jews are immediately gunned down and their bodies left in the street to serve as an example. The Nazis mock the statue and the Jews and leave. The private is on sentry duty that night in the front of the golem when the eyes of the statue suddenly light up. It moves to Kunz's quarters, pulls him out, and crushes him. The other Germans open fire to no effect and are also killed. Only the sentry is spared. The officer on horseback mocks the shaken private. There was obviously an ambush. He fires a burst at the golem almost as an afterthought before ordering the Jews rounded up and their horses stabled for the night in the synagogue. The Jews present protest this sinful act, so the officer locks them inside and sets the place on fire with a flamethrower. The dying Jews plead for the golem to help them as the rest of the patrol round up the locals. The officer stiffens as the golem comes to life and destroys all of his men. The officer realizes how wrong his cause was, and the statue spares him to tell the tale. That, like I said, was that was your cover story, and that was a <laughs> good cover story. So just uh, I couldn't find anything that uh, bothered me as far as a killjoy was here. So just moving right along to my commendations. Oh, I'll put something in. I actually didn't I'm write sure, it in sure the script. Well, no, I didn't write it in the script, but I want to put. I want to throw this in here as a pushing up my glasses. Well, actually, because I just said earlier how well, I don't actually. know. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> about a lot of things, but I do know a lot about useless stuff like um, uh, mythology and some mythology related related to religions. Now, what's in this story really can't possibly be called a golem or a golem because those are made of clay, and in order for them to carry out their actions they have to have a scroll with the instructions written on that scroll curled up and inserted into a hole usually in the forehead of the golem and this thing is just a giant stone uh, statue um, that comes to life when it feels like it and kicks ass under its own like i guess the people entreat it they they beg for it to avenge them and for some reason it waits a long time before it does that each time um so it's not it's not really how golems mythologically worked. And then I will finish pushing my glasses up and you can move on to commentations. <laughs> well, anyway, my, um, my favorite, uh, my favorite panel in the story was uh, page four, panel three, when like, the golem treats uh, Hopkins Quinn's like a Pez dispenser. <laughs> it's just, he's holding the body up and the head, there's just, crunch sound and the head is gone and the helmet is, fl- is uh, flying into the background behind him it's, it's it would almost be funny if it wasn't so grisly <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a that's a rough panel man that, that's just like <laughs> you are a squishy human and i have a giant stone hand and that's how that ends it, it's it's just brutal and it's full panel there's nothing hidden there. I'll say Neil Adams, if he is just inking here, he is inking with a very heavy hand. And it really only helps the story, of course. I mean, it, this all looks like Neil Adams art for the most part. In fact, I've never heard of Steve Harper either. So if he penciled this at all, I think I feel like what he did was closer to layouts at best. The credits, I, I, I don't know if they're, if they're quite right here. Um, you know, and Harper was just the writer, but some panels kind of aren't up to Neil Adams standards. So maybe, maybe he did do um, uh, some Excellent. heavy inks over this amateur guy. Maybe it was a buddy of his that had a good story and wanted to draw it out as almost a stick figure comic, you know, who knows? And also to me, it looked like the Gollum pushed Hauptman. Is that, is that like a title or a name? That's, is that like, that's a title. 
the title, pushed the Hauptman's head down into his body rather than flicking it backwards. But you know, is that not how you load a pest dispenser? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is how this is how Easter always went at Rich's house. You know, <laughs> like oh god, we go through more Pez dispensers. We're dating ourselves right here with two guys that know what the hell Pez dispensers are, but that's neither here nor there. Oh, they must still make Pez dispensers. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do, but they were a much bigger deal. You know, back when we still were chasing around after you know jelly beans and the Easter Bunny and everything. Yeah, I so. bet they're probably still making them, but it's for like adult collectors, forty-five and above, who are like, "Ooh, these are tied to Godzilla versus Kong or the new Star Wars movie." You know, it's it just people not take them out of the plastic. Yeah, people our age buying up collectible Pez dispensers like suckers. So probably. <laughs> so with that, man, we're gonna move on to the next full-length story, and this is another Robert Conagher and Tony DeZuniga joint called Duel of the Dead. Now this synopsis is as follows. A German World War I ace starts his day with a cup of coffee spiked with schnapps, chatting with his orderly in a room covered with trophies of his aerial hunts and looking forward to bringing home a prize that day. Even the other pilots in his squadron think he's bloodthirsty. After takeoff, he soon discovers a French Newport and pounces. The Newport explodes under the German ace's guns and he curses his luck. No trophy there. However, he eventually sees a British SE-5 and attacks. The British pilot signals that his guns are jammed and that he is helpless, but the German doesn't care. He continues to fire and forces the wounded plane down into no man's land. It's pilot dead. The German lands and tears off a piece of fabric, probably with the British national insignia on it, from the plane's wing as a souvenir. As the German remounts his plane, thinking of his lunch, he's shocked when the British plane opens fire on him. He starts his engine and charges at the SE-5, firing back and screaming, I'll have to kill you twice for my souvenir. Nothing will stop me. The planes collide on the ground, and each pilot duels with the other at extreme close range until the German pilot is killed. I mean, th- these are two planes right in front of each other, just still unloading from their guns at like point blank range. If it wasn't so gruesome, it would kind of be hilarious. It'd be tough to film that scene without making people laugh, I think. But the way it's drawn, of course, by De Zuniga, it just looks badass. So with that, I'll let you shoot some holes in this story. <laughs> well, he gets an F for effort when it comes to drawing the aircraft, uh, Disneyga. I mean, all are even vaguely identified as a Fokker, a Newport, an SE-5. I didn't recognize anything in this story. There's also miscolored, misplaced, and flat-out wrong national insignia. It really detracted from the story for me, anyway. I mean, I guess Russ Heath has just spoiled, spoiled me over the years. And oh yeah, a one-eyed enemy ace. That's a hell of a blind spot to compensate for it's <laughs> mirror our week try the deal uh, it, it's hard enough to stay alive in the air with two eyes yeah i know he's the bad guy uh but you know what i've done some research and i read about a few german and russian world war ii fighter pilots who did it so hey maybe i'm the jerk here maybe but uh yeah real stretch of the imagination yeah I know. but uh, you know just lunging right into the right into the commendations i'm going to go all history prof on you again and uh, you know world war one pilots were called knights of the air you know there were rules code of conduct chivalry and there are plenty of examples like this on both sides of pilots sparing their victim if uh, their guns were empty or jammed another story i recall was that i think of a british pilot that was shot down 
and trapped in the wreckage, and the German landed and freed him and saved his life. Captured pilots were sometimes treated as honored guests by the victor before being sent to prisoner camps. And both sides would brave anti-aircraft fire to fly over enemy airfields, drop memorial wreaths and messages to update the other side about losses and captures. So yeah, the German pilot here is a jerk. I'm sure many listeners are familiar with enemy ace Hans von Hammer, who was a popular regular in the pages of Star Spangled War Stories and other DC war books. He was created by Robert Conagher and Joe Kubert and was loosely based on Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron. Hammer followed these codes of the sky. I'm a huge fan of the character. And I got signatures from Russ Heath and Neil Adams on uh, enemy ace work. My only regret is I didn't get Kubert on any, but I got him on other key DC war books like Sergeant Rock and Unknown Soldier. So, you know, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? Yeah, oh, I got Russ Heath and Neil Adams to sign them, but you know, uh, Mr. Uh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, historical inaccuracies aside, I still submit that Tony DeZuniga is one of the best comic artists of his generation. My evidence? The opening splash panel of this story. The ease with which Tony D draws us into that scene. An almost charming early morning meeting over a fresh cup of coffee before a day's work. In a room littered with grisly trophies of death. And no details skipped over or overdone it's just masterful and i love the rest of the story too and as far as like your killjoy stuff man i am that is grade a killjoy for one thing that's what we're here for that's that's why why we're showing up that's part of the show uh, i am so glad that i didn't know or notice any of that it didn't even occur to me that the pilot had one eye i was too caught up in all the cool art and the action but i knew i could count on you man so uh with that we will um jump to the epilogue and who's up here who did this did i do this i think on? that would be i think it's my turn yeah you, you were just talking I did the opening, so I guess it's only fair that I do the close. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Stop me from talking, please. It's simply known as Epilogue. And it's, again, the writer is unknown. And Tony D has done the art. And it's a one-page epilogue, just like it was a one-page opening. When death saves you from falling onto the bayonet of a dead German soldier lying in the bottom of a shell hole as you're running away from enemy fire. But he promises more dread to come in the next weird war. And again, you know, Tony D, I mean, the first panel, love it. It's a skeletal death in British World War One uniform. I mean, he, he, again, he just nails it. I mean, just, how many scenes were that like this were seen in no man's land you know a skeletal body wearing a uh, wearing a uniform clutching a weapon depending on where you dig a hole you could probably find crap like that today i mean they find unknown soldiers from world war one all the time still you know in that stretch of land in france and belgium so excellent excellent artwork yeah i mean part. to bring out my other nerd card here like uh jrr tolkien and um his buddy there whose work i really haven't read the narnia dude c.s lewis so there were scenes in the lord of the rings that were inspired by them walking over these muddy fields with bodies submerged into them like washed out trenches and just fields of the dead still gripping their weapons and stuff there's a scene in um in one of the lord of the rings books where frodo and sam and Gollum are walking across a field like that you know and of course they fantasy it up in the book but it was inspired by their experiences in that war so yeah, pretty common and, and pretty haunting imagery, apparently. So, you know, my, uh, my commendations here, again, I'm just, I could gush about Tony's work deservedly all day long, but for me, I'll call out the first person view effect in this. Like, you know, when you say death is speaking to you, they actually try to draw the scenes from your perspective for the most part. And there's one scene where your feet are dangling 
above the looming bayonet that you're about to fall on while death is, is physically holding you back from falling. And it's like one of those scenes in a first person video game t- by today's parlance, like where, um, you know, you see uh, your own feet dangling over imminent death. It's just brilliantly effective. And again, I love the classic style horror host opening and closing here with, um, you know, the this guy talking directly to us who are somehow submerged in the story with him. So uh, again, so a triumphant issue at this point, story content wise, everything was awesome in this first original content issue. So we'll jump into the APO Weird War Tales, which is going to talk about issues that came before this one. I'll let you lead it off, man. Let's do the letters column. Okay, well, uh, (laughs) there's a letter on each column that just lunges out at you. And this one obviously was no exception. There was that guy. You know, dear Joe, Weird War Tales is marvelous. The first story was the best. Started. Sorry to tell you, you made some mistakes, though. I read every book I can about World War One pilots and planes. I'm no expert, but I think I do know a little. In the story, you called the German plane an albatross. The plane was called an albatross. Also, the pilots did not have parachutes, but observers and blimps or balloons did. And Joe responded, you know, dear Tom. We strive for as much realism as possible, but occasionally mistakes do drop in our books. In the case of Al Ross, though, we feel we did not make a mistake. The plane was actually called an albatross, which we translated from German to the English albatross. <laughs> so, well, there's like albatross with one S to albatross with two S's. And I'm just lo- reading this and I'm just instantly just diving right into the old Monty Python routine. Albatross! <laughs> Albatross, you know, where, where John Cleese is walking around the sporting event with a great big dead seabird on the serving tray. <laughs> it's like, I've only got the one. <laughs> bloody sea, bloody bird, bloody flavor. Albatross. <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling that was immediately jumping into your mind. And uh, the, the bottom of the letters column also says, readers, we want your letters. Well-written, thought-out, constructive letters for printing in APA Weird Wars tale. So you kind of have to wonder what they've been getting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you have to spell it out in that many, you know, pieces of detail, well-written, thought out, constructive letters, you know, for printing, you know, like be they've just been getting Don't like, be crass. These, yeah, they've been getting like ransom notes and manifestos and like, you know, grocery lists, whatever the hell they've been getting. Um, for, for me, uh, first of all, uh, that, that letter you just talked about, that was obviously another one written by you after you built a time machine because <laughs> that, that dude was you. Uh, I would say I skimmed through the letters and it was good to see the pool and slave. Uh, stories we covered in previous episodes, dear listeners, still getting kudos in these pages. And the mention of Marv Wolfman's Pawns, the story uh, set in the far future with the robots. Uh, one writer mentions that this story had elements of war and anti-war that he appreciated. And that was nice to see called out because as you know, at the end of all these stories, at least the ones that um, that Joe Kubert was editing on, because now we have Joe uh, Orlando, uh, who's who's writing back, make war no more was kind of a thing for him. So, you know, the, the war and anti-war message is something I've always associated with with the DC war books, especially after I started reading more of them off of you. Just, um, just a, I knew you 
you were going to be all over the albatross letter, so I'm like, well, that one's taken. <laughs> so I just skimmed the rest of the column. But um, it's got to be one here I can use. With that, in every episode, we like to focus on a favorite ad from this classic old comic book, and Rich uh, took the probably the coolest one, so I'm going to let him start. <laughs> hey, Billy, did you really sculpt and paint all these statues? It's uh, that's the first panel of what used to be called the um, Chippeway sets. It would be a like a like a soft material molded around a molded uh, like athlete cat horse dog whatever of a harder material and you would chip away the soft stuff to expose the the hard stuff and you'd paint it and put it on display never had one but i love the concept i I, I found an unpainted 1973 flintstone set set on ebay for 25 dollars Due to the nature of the toy, I can't imagine there are many of these things floating around, let alone unchipped ones. There are knockoffs of these around, you know, get a fossil, get a diamond, you know, et cetera. I recently, I, when I was doing a little bit of research on this, I found an unopened Star Wars free Han Solo from the Carbonite set, which I thought was funny as hell. I'm sorry. <laughs> Apparently, it only goes back to the most recent trilogy. Don't ask me why, but I got to admit, it's... Uh, I like it. You know, the, the Kenner Chippeway set. Yeah, it's just, just an odd relic of, of like 1970s toy philosophy. Like, it's supposed to make you feel like you're an old school sculptor with a, you know, hammer and chisel knocking away at a giant block of stone to create Michelangelo's uh, David or whatever, you know? And, you know, like you said, really, you're just knocking the soft stuff off the figure that's buried inside. But just t- like that used to pass for entertainment, man. Like we would get something like that, you know, or kids slightly, you know, before our time, we'd get something like that. And that, that would be the afternoon. That'd be the morning right there. Just like, wow, I'm a sculptor. And, and that worked. You know, and, and it still works on me because seeing this ad, all I want is every single one of those. <laughs> so I can, I just hope they're blind. Like they don't tell you what's underneath it, you know, cause like in the little comic book ad, the kid was like trying to guess what he was unveiling. So I think these are some of the first blind box toys. Like it's a basketball player. No, wait, it's a hockey player. No, no, no. It's a swimmer. <laughs> yep. So like, these are some of the first blind box toys where you were paying money for something. You didn't know what it was. You know, so I, I kind of thought that was neat too. And I really want the Han Solo thing. Man. That's, <laughs> that's a brilliant, like last gasp, modern use of the concept. Like I know how we can sell one. Ha ha. Um, so for my ad, this was tough since you took the chip aways. Um, and please, if anyone wants to find these things on eBay and send them to us, um, it, yeah, get, get, contact us. We're going to, we're going to talk about the fact that we're going to have a Facebook page and a Twitter and stuff like that. You want to send us toys, please do, uh, you know, we won't say no. Um, so it was tough for me to pick an ad, um, but I'm picking one that starts off with, I'm sick and tired of my job. That's got to take it. Um, the sheer domestic dysfunction on display in this ad is awesome. There's a panel where the wife is like, please, dear, besides, we don't go out that often. And it's like, you know, because of your lousy job, you failure. Um, So the ad, like, you know, it starts off with a couple at home. And this can be your big break. If you're a man who's ever said, I'm sick and tired of my job. And so it starts with a scene with the wife coming in. There's a very tired looking husband sitting in a chair. So this is practically from the 50s instead of the 70s. But I guess times didn't change that much. And the wife is saying, don't forget, dear, we've got a date for the movies with Jim and Helen tonight. And, you know. Deer is saying, oh, honey, I'm bushed. That lousy job of mine. 
And then that's her going, please, dear. Besides, we don't get out that often. You know, and then it, it turns into like Jim, like sent away to some correspondence school where he got a job in electronics and it's all BS and nonsense. You go to the Cleveland Institute of Electronics and you'll get a refreshing career just doing these, uh, you know, study at home little lesson books or whatever is nonsense. And it's likely a scam. There's a little box there, though, that makes it relevant to this book that says, check here, veterans and servicemen. Check here for GI Bill information. So the ad even has a little bit of military flavor buried in the in the bottom of the coupon, so it can also scam soldiers. Again, maybe this stuff was on the level. I doubt it, but <laughs> but the ad itself's hilarious. With like, man, there's some you know domestic dysfunction here. With like, you know, this oh, all right, how, yeah, how crappy your job is, and we don't even get get out to the movies because you couldn't get a real job, and wife is. Brow beating him into going oh, to Jim and Helen's to her look, the look of scorn on her face in that in that second panel is awesome. I, I just wish I knew who drew this thing because man, you know, the just the smiling jackass who's selling the coupon on the bottom. It's great. And I do have to mention, I'm gonna cheat because hey, I'm doing the editing. I had a second place. There's the back cover has another ad from Aurora, the model company, which seems to be a major sponsor of this entire series, uh, for this toy called the Imposters tame looking cars that change into mean racing machines and it shows this little like bw beetle racing forward and it just sort of comes apart like the hood slides forward like you know pipes come out it's like from that you know again it's sort of a relic of the 50s aesthetic of now it's a cool looking hot rod but you know here we have a transforming car toy way before optimus prime or anybody else made by aurora it's just things that I'd never heard of the imposters. Obviously, I was like a year old when this comic came out at best or, you know, or just being born. But you'd think I would have seen these things floating around some of my, my older relatives, you know, houses and whatnot. But no, no. I, had you ever heard of the imposters from Aurora? Like, I wonder how many of these they made. I don't know. I <laughs> I wasn't collecting comic books. I was, what, like three or something like that. Yeah, but these were just toys, man. Like Aurora was like a big deal model company. And even at the bottom of the ad, it says, they're a lot more car than meets the eye. I'm like, well, that sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds pretty familiar. That's issue eight. It was fantastic. Um, I should mention that we're getting close to launch time here. We recorded all all of these way ahead of time. Um, We do have a Twitter and a Facebook account. So we're at Weird Warriors Podcast on both of those services. You can contact us there. Our artwork for the show was done by Bill Walco, who we will also link to on our uh, social media accounts. And who knows, we may even have some uh, t-shirts and mugs and stuff like that. I mean, we got some good artwork. We might as well do something with it. Let other people enjoy it. And um, we'll have we'll have more updates like that to come as we get more official here. So <laughs> again, uh, until next time, I'm Max. And I'm rich. And we want you to make war. No more.